from the nation's leading supply chain university program, we welcome you to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Supply Chain Research. Here are your hosts, Steve Tracy and Irv Grossman. Episode 9 of the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast. Um, Irv Grossman here with Steve Tracy. Steve's the Executive Director of the Center for Supply Chain Research. Steve, you done any uh, holiday shopping? Are the shelves full in State College? I have not done any holiday shopping, Irv. Um, I, I leave that up to more capable hands than myself. <laughs> I just went. I just went shopping for uh, for Thanksgiving, and I found out that we are uh, is that we have a shortage of cream cheese, so could be a crisis. Tragic. So, <laughs> so uh, the topic of today's uh, podcast is the future of work fl- workplace challenges. Uh, today, we will explore pandemic-related implications on the workforce, its challenges and shifts in culture and behavior, recruitment and attrition, and navigating unintentional inequities created by the changing landscape. We'll wrap up with uh, best practices and a- actionable behaviors that we as supply chain professionals can use to accelerate uh, help in this accelerated work hybrid environment. Joining us today is Shay Brotherton. Hi, Shay. Hello. Uh, Shay is a senior principal of management advisory services with LMI. And uh, Shay, if I don't mind, uh, if it's okay, I'll provide a little bit of bio and background for the audience. Um, Shay Brotherton provides solutions architect expertise across a diverse LMI service lines, focusing on integration of disparate capabilities and innovation areas. She also leads LMI's future of work innovation offerings, including LMI's diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility maturity model, known as DEIA, new normal frameworks for hybrid workforce, and data-driven solutions to help better understand employee value propositions, map training and career opportunities to employee interests. A prior Air Force communications officer, Shay's previous roles with LMI include director roles with the Strategy and Organizational Management Group and with management services. Previous to LMI, Shay's experience focused on innovation offerings related to strategic planning, organizational transformation, process improvement, workforce planning, talent development and engagement, and strategic communications and change management. Shay has a BS in biology and computer science from Duke University and an MBA in strategy con- with a strategy concentration from the London Business School. She's currently working on her doctorate in, cu- in human organizational le- learning from George Washington University's Graduate School of Education and Human Development. Welcome aboard. It sounds like you're the right person to talk about this subject over the next half hour. I am so thrilled to be here. There, there's so much going on in this space and it's such a timely topic. So I'm just overjoyed to be able to talk with you today. Excellent. And, and maybe if it could be help as a help starter, can you tell the audience a little bit about LMI? Sure. So LMI is actually just turning 60 years old. We've been around for a little bit. LMI actually stands for Logistics Management Institute. And we have our our roots in the logistics side of the house and have maintained a strong um, background of supporting, looking at how do you improve logistics, specifically within the federal workforce. Um, While we started in kind of the basement of the Pentagon, focused on DOD, these days LMI is focused on supporting you know, not just logistics, which is you know, everything from acquisition, supply chain management, distribution and maintenance operations to what we call management advisory services. Um, that's going to be things like your, your PMO support, 
your financial management strategy and organizational management, business transformation, human capital solutions. And our third, you can almost think of it as a third pillar, a third service line in digital and analytic services. So that's going to be things like your, you know, cyber data infrastructure and, you know, kind of those digital solutions. So we kind of bring those combination of very disparate services to federal clients across the DOD, national security, civilian and health markets. And the idea is, you know, how do you bring expertise and innovation to trying to think over the horizon of what's the big problems of tomorrow for our federal clients? And how do we bring this expertise together in a fused way to really deliver on that? And I understand LMI has a, a long relationship with Penn State. Um, Steve? Yeah, we've uh, been partners for over 20 years, which is more than two thirds of our lifetime. So uh, as they mentioned, uh, LMI has been around for 60 years. The CSCR has been around for we're going into our 33rd year um, here. So uh, and LMI has been a partner for more than 20 of those years, which is great. And we're proud that we're uh, one of a handful of strategic academic partners for LMI, um, which kind of puts us into some rare air. Uh, working with Dr. Bixby and Shane and a lot of other folks there at LMI and a variety of different initiatives. And we have a very close relationship. Uh, we have a lot of great sponsors. I think the average tenure of a sponsor today is north of about uh, 12 years. So that's the average. But uh, we have got a few uh, partners that we've been um, been together with for a long time, and LMI is one of them. Excellent. So and Shay, for you, uh, how did how did you end up in in uh, uh, focusing on I would call it human development side of uh, side of uh, LMI? So it's kind of a a long uh, meandering path. Um, I'm I'm kind of a, a strategist and solutions thinker by nature and by trade. Uh, actually, I think my background is a good example of how you can evolve and change over time while still staying true to that some of those core internal drivers. Like I like figuring out how things work and how to fix them. So, you know, I started in biology and computer science, actually neuroscience at the time, um, trying to figure out again, how things work, got the opportunity to be in the air force and privileged to serve overseas, uh, in CONUS as comms officer in a variety of roles. And in that realm, I mean, I really had the opportunity to be part of helping stand up, um, an operational organization for a satellite systems comms system expert office. So, you know, kind of transitioning mission manning money from a variety of other organizations. And again, that that flavor of figuring out how things work, how do you create solutions is really exciting. And I end up taking that over into doing management consulting. Um, and and you, you, you spoke about that briefly, everything from the strategy to human capital and workforce planning, talent development. I find a lot of it fits together. Like, how do you transform an organization to meet the needs of tomorrow? And my mindset is if you're only addressing one element you're only addressing people you're only addressing infrastructure you're only addressing strategy you've kind of missed the point it all goes together so it's, it's been a kind of a an interesting path but now i'm really excited to be working on these future of work initiatives and a range of other solutions and capabilities at lmi trying to figure out what's needed and how do we need it so harold levitt wasn't wrong in the 1960s when he said it's people process and technology right I, I think it's it's all an evolution, um, but even what, what you just said there, it's you combine them together, people, process, and technology. It's you know human capital, infrastructure, and data together. If we, it's a co-evolving ecosystem. If we really want to try to best position, you know, our workforce and organizations for tomorrow. 
So let's try to dig into some of these, um, I'll call them <laughs> big hairy problems that we're all facing these days. And um, we'd love to hear your insights and what you're um, hearing from your clients and what solutions you're working on. So, um, you know, tell us, tell us some examples of instances where you, where you see um, dynamics and structural changes occurring in the workplace and maybe what some of the implications of those are. Shay. Sure. There, there are a few things that actually come to mind right away, um, especially in light of the last two years and the pandemic, which I think has really sped up uh, a lot of things that were already happening. We may have taken what was going to happen in the next five years and crammed it into about nine months. Um, so if I were looking for some big structural changes, one of the things I'd say is how people communicate. You know, the technology is shaping how and who we communicate with and kind of why we're communicating sometimes. So in a virtual environment, sometimes you have to be much more deliberate about setting up a meeting to talk to someone versus walking down the hall. Uh, I'd say our, our use of technology has changed quite a bit as well. We've got this increased use of collaborative platforms like Zoom and Teams which means we're also more dependent on the stability and the um, rapidity of getting that service, access to data and infrastructure, as well as the security of that infrastructure. And I think cybersecurity is one of those things that is becoming more and more important because of the nature of how much is moving onto these collaborative platforms and just kind of where the future of work is going in many cases. Um, I think there's a, an evolution of new social norms, things like showing face on video, um, and also you know, kind of who you're forming your relationships with in the workplace. You know, it might be easier to form direct connections for those people you work with on teams or projects, but it may be more difficult to form connections with a broader organization. So organizations have to think about how are they going to onboard, acculturate, and kind of sustain engagement with people that they may not see in the office all the time, and they may not have a, a direct reason to interact with unless they make a point of kind of implementing a range of engagement mechanisms to do so. We see that a lot in our organization as well. So, you know, as far as, you know, what's the, what are your learnings and experience in, in shifting the culture and engagement? Uh, well, first of all, I'd say there is no perfect one-size-fits-all approach to hybrid workplaces, work processes, and kind of this evolving new normal culture. Um, I, I think one thing that has stood out as key is the importance of adaptability uh, for people, for organizations, for sectors. Uh, I think for people, we are still in the midst of a pandemic, so the, the merits of being able to adapt almost go without saying. Um, but for firms, um, you also... They should be thinking about resiliency of what's created and how it's being created. So in the last several decades, we had seen a focus on efficiency in many industries. During the pandemic, we've seen some of the challenges that occur when expected supply chains or demand and supply get disrupted. And how do you think in a very resilient way for the future? One of the things that I'm actually really glad to see on a more of a culture side of the house is a focus, an increased focus on mental health emotional intelligence and kind of the employee experience. Um, if you think about culture, uh, culture is kind of the accumulated shared learning of a given group. You know, norms are, you can think of those as, as rules and expectations that are socially enforced. So when we think about culture for organizations, we're thinking about, you know, what people see and hear, um, what they value, what are the values that are espoused for the organization, and then also a lot of the underlying assumptions. 
folks, as we're thinking about the new social normal norms, we're adjusting how we engage each other in all of those areas. It's, it's very dynamic right now. Um, and so it's, it's challenging for organizations that maybe haven't thought through how to deliberately engage in a more virtual world. I think one of the things that LMI did that I really appreciated is they actually created training for all the project managers and leaders across the organization on here's how to better engage in a virtual world. Here's some best practices, some norms, some training on the technology um, and rolled it out across the board. Um, and then we actually, I think, made that available to some of our clients as well. Um, because we were looking at, you know, what benchmarking was telling us about organizations with positive virtual cultures, higher digital IQ, higher virtual capability maturity, uh, which has a huge range of benefits from increased productivity engagement, reduction of costs, accelerated learning, and actually going back to efficiency, increased efficiency. So one of the things that hit the news this past week, and it's not really a surprise, I think, you know, is the number of people leaving their jobs. And I'm assuming that the vast majority of them are going to another job because there's plenty of jobs out there uh, it, and, you know, hit a record. So uh, I don't remember what the exact number was. It was some kind of crazy number, like 4 million people um, at one time. So how are both recruiting, how we attract new talent and retention of talent, how are those adapting to fit I'll call it this new abnormal because it's not really normal. It's, it's almost like a new structural change. And how are, um, how do we adapt to that? And, and are there new standards yet? Or are they still being developed? Uh, that's, that's a key question. Um, I think there's a, a range of different trends and considerations we're starting to see in what many of the workforce are seeking and in what employers are starting to offer. Um, the great resignation uh, is part of what you were just referring to. Um, yeah. it, it's, it's a catchy phrase. I, I think there's a couple different things going into that. And one of which is during the last year and a half, two years, there has been some pent up demand and people wanting to leave their organization. So you've got people that maybe would have left along the way. Now we're starting to see them move. Um, but also we're, we're having some changes in what people are looking for that is causing them sometimes to look elsewhere. Um, and so what does that mean for implications? Well, one is the idea of a, kind of a work from anywhere. There are organizations, increased number of organizations that offer increased flexibility where you can um, work from anywhere. I'm, I'm taking that, that phrase, by the way, from NASA. It's not work remotely, it's work from anywhere you might be. Um, and so an organization in order to attract and retain that, that top talent they need to figure out and be competitive in the space of figuring out um, can they be hybrid? What can they offer? And you start getting into other implications on things like different costs of living in different locations. So locality pay is one of the things that organizations need to start thinking about. Um, you spoke about the recruitment side of the house. And so who and how you recruit changes when the potential talent pool for many roles is enormously expanded by the possibility of remote work. So instead of just the DC area, for example, here, if I am able to bring anyone onto my team across the nation, then I have an enormously 
grown talent pool, but also there's a lot of different possibilities for skill sets and kind of niche capabilities that they can bring. There is a lot of, you mentioned the great resignation. And so, you know, how do you kind of fight that attrition? Um, there's kind of the classic out of the house where organizations need to figure out what's driving attrition for them. You can do things like exit interviews, stay interviews, to take a more data-driven strategy to addressing those drivers for your particular organization. Um, I'd also recommend that organizations look at if a job really needs to be done in person or if flex flexibility in the workplace is an option. Because if you have an equal job to your competitor and they offer flexibility and you don't, and that's something that your employee values, you're likely going to lose that person. And that's, you know, no ding on any employee. You, you look for what is best for um, your life, your career, your you know, success in the world. And that's a natural part of the dynamics of a workplace and a workforce. I think that shift has been a blessing and a curse, right? You just mentioned it. The blessing is, well, now I can recruit anywhere. And, you know, our, um, our colleague on the line here who's uh, silently in the background making sure Irwin and I do our job well, Kenzie Dorr, uh, joined us. She lives in Boise, Idaho. And uh, no way pre-pandemic would we have entertained a remote work uh, marketing and communication specialist. But in the interview process, the top three candidates, none of them, none of them was in a thousand miles of State College, Pennsylvania. Um, and we did get the best one, so we got lucky there. But uh, but the curse of that is is that now just so we, that we can recruit anywhere, so can everybody else. So People who were, I'll call it for lack of a better description, landlocked before because they were in a geographical location that was maybe limiting to what career opportunities are, they don't have that anymore. So, so like you said, you can work from anywhere. Um, so it's a, it's a bit of a blessing and a curse, I think. There's been a, it, no, no, there's, I just want to kind of recap a couple of things you said as far as exit interviews and also stay interviews, I think you used the term. Is that right? Um, which is almost like a kind of a quarterly check-in process, it sounds like, but in it, some respects. It doesn't necessarily need to be quarterly, but the idea there is you are talking with people in your workforce about why are they staying, essentially. You know, what's making them happy? What are they looking for? What do they value? Um, because you don't just want to find those things out when someone has given you a resignation letter and is walking out the door. You want to know along the way what's working, what's keeping people there, what, what should I be investing in uh, to attract more of this type of talent? So it's more proactive exactly. than reactive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. And, I, and I also, I, I, I want to kind of make a comment about the flexibility of the, of, of this is of, of recruiting people. The attrition on the other side can also be a little bit scary too, because you have people you're bringing on board that you don't have, I'll call it a, um, you're not in their space. You're not, you know, you don't see them a lot. It's hard to build a culture. So do you want to talk about those, you know, what we're seeing as it relates to attrition and because that that's the downside of, of the, the recruiting process and being so remote. How do, how do we, what do we do? Yeah, that, that's that? a, uh, that's a very real challenge. Um, I'd say, especially right now, um, as individuals are, are entering an organization one of the things that you'll often see is in the first year is where you will lose a lot of people, especially right now, because they, if they don't feel a connection 
to the organization, they're much more likely to leave. And how do you establish and reinforce that connection and, and really have them understand and feel a part of the culture of your organization can be challenging. And that's something that in the past, a lot of organizations depended on that that face-to-face experience, you know, walking through the halls in the office, really getting to know your colleagues well that are just like in the desk next to you. And that's not really the reality anymore. So as organizations are looking at how they onboard people, they should be shifting to not just, you know, can I do virtual um, benefits and, and kind of all the logistics administrative side of the house, but how can they transform that onboarding experience so that you are giving your new employees a feel for what is the culture of this organization and so that they have an opportunity to really connect with and get to know other people in the organization. One of the things that we had also looked at uh, is how do you set in place uh, kind of reinforcement mechanisms for that ongoing acculturation. So it's not just in the first week you got this blast of information all this different training you uh, attended, you met your leadership, great. And then you went to a site and were never heard from again. Uh, instead, you should have some, some mechanisms in place, some processes some norms for you know, maybe having a 30-day check-in with your new employees, see how things are going. Maybe have a, a monthly meeting along the way for your newer employees to kind of you know, help build their networks. Um, leverage communities of practice. That's something that they, they form um, in a, a variety of maturity levels across different organizations, but the idea there is having a network, a community of people who are interested in similar things or resources for each other that may help move, you know, might be certain capabilities, training, speakers, move key concepts forward together. It sounds a lot like engineered serendipity, <laughs> sounds like the definition I would put. But it sounds like this is where you'd use the, the if you're, you're a company that has social channels or, or whatever, you would use those as your vehicle to make sure that occurs. It sounds like a lot of burden on the human uh, the human resources portion of an organization. Uh, human develop. Uh, what, what are you seeing as far as where's the, the where's this effort? You know, where's this effort falling that's, in the that's organizational? A, that's a great question. Structure. And well, actually, let me. Uh attack that in, in a couple different ways. One, I'd say if, if your plan is to have your human resources element do all of it, then you are setting up a single point of failure and you're going to completely overburden those people and they may be the ones to leave and find another organization. Um, also, just looking at some of the best practices around establishing self-sustaining communities of practice have to do with having buy-in and engagement from the people in the community itself. So it's not like a downward directed, you know, thou shalt belong to this organization type of structure. You want to set up the, the infrastructure, kind of the conditions for success, but it needs to be run and driven forward by the people in the community themselves or it will founder. Um, yeah, so on, in terms of technology, you want to make sure that you're your company, your firm is investing in the infrastructure to really support collaboration across a, a range of different mediums um, and have that, that kind of knowledge management and sharing in place. On terms of communication, this is another area where there is no one perfect silver bullet to communicate with your everyone in the workforce. And so we have found that you are 
best served from taking a multi-pronged approach. For some people, it is through chats, you know, Teams type channels. For some people, it's direct email communication. Some people, it's taking part in virtual meetings. And so your best way with it, of engaging with your broader population is to do all of those things in, you know, to different degrees in order to kind of set these um, conditions for two-way communication and collaboration uh, in place. So one of the things, of course, that everybody is more keenly aware of these days is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, you know, I guess in my opinion, probably in years touche, it's long overdue, but, you know, we're, we're here now and people are paying more attention to it. So uh, have you seen any, um, through this, you know, advancement, this move that's occurred in the last couple of years, have you seen any further inequities occur? Uh, maybe unanticipated consequences, particularly in, in the in the remote uh, work? And have you seen any uh, best practices and improvements in addressing that or other diversity, equity, inclusion issues? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I, I want to focus first on some of the perhaps unintentional inequities. Um, one thing that we've seen it in the news, this is, a, you know, you've probably seen it from a couple different directions at this point, is that during the pandemic, women and minorities have been disproportionately impacted. And by that, we mean women leaving the workforce or downshifting their careers at a far disproportionate rate as compared to men, for example. And that can be a variety of reasons. Some of the things that we're starting to see in studies that are being done is that you know many negatively impacted jobs are still disproportionately filled by, by women and minorities. Um, many women may still hold disproportionate roles in taking care of the family and children, um, which has implications during a pandemic when school districts and childcare is impacted. Um, mm -hmm. There is also an inequity that we're, we're seeing, Now we've been talking a lot about virtual work. Not every job can be done virtually. And there are some structural implications in you know, who tends to fill roles that can and can't be done uh, virtually and what does that mean for our broader society? And therefore, what should a manager or our broader society be doing to try to put in place uh, measures to better support or appreciate people that do have to be uh, in person to provide uh, certain services, conduct certain functions? Um, I also wanted to touch on an inequity that is related to IT. And that's both on a, a company side. Um, not all companies were at the same place in digital enablement. Um, and the pandemic really forced that need for digital transformation across the board. So I mentioned at the start, we probably advanced about five years and nine months in terms of moving forward into the virtual space. Um, that has implications. When you rapidly acquire something, you may not be acquiring the best solution. You may be moving into cloud technology in a way that is not as organized. There are security implications that, that companies may have rushed through. Um, this is gonna impact their, their spending in the future for how you sustain good security, good knowledge management. And then getting beyond the company side of IT, there's also the individuals who are now working remotely. What does their remote workspace actually look like? Not everybody has the same space available in their house, for example set up a dedicated office and have the, the strong internet connection and the, the chair that is meant to be sat in for eight hours at a time. 
um, a lot of people kind of, you know, figured out ways to make do during the pandemic and have now been making do for about two years. So you do have some inequities in that experience itself. And I would expect that we would see some changes, some evolution in some of the policies, like safety regulations, for example, um, that are going to impact remote workplaces in the future. I, I think there's been such a huge shift uh, in our society in general towards that, that we're going to see some natural evolution of the regulations uh, to help in, ensure safety and security for people in the future as well. Tying back to this this culture issue that you were talking about earlier, one of the things that, that we've experienced firsthand um, at the university, pre-pandemic, the university was literally 100% in person. Like, if you, if you work remotely at at, at the university, you were as rare as a unicorn jumping over a rainbow. Um, since we've come back to an in-person work environment, we're now about 50% in person. And one of the things that's cropped up is some of it's anecdotal, some of it I think is real, some of it is just impression, mm -hmm. is that the people that are in person, because they've in some cases have chosen to be in other cases they're essential workforce right they have to be in person to do their jobs there's developed this bit of a rift between the in-person workforce and the remote workforce um now i haven't seen a firsthand kinsey's on here she knows she she was hired as a remote workforce person and is doing a fantastic job and we don't experience but for people who were used to working in person and now are working remotely there's kind of like well I'm not sure those people are working as hard. And the flip side of it is that some of the people that are in person are being burdened with tasks that would have normally been performed in person by somebody else. Are you seeing that same situation arise in different workforces? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's one of those challenges that I, I think organizations really need to think very deliberately about how to ensure they're not accidentally reinforcing bias in a couple different ways. Um, and it's funny, you, you'll see kind of both sides of that equation, um, pros and cons. So, you know, the, the in-person contingent, the, the more traditional experience as well, you're getting that face time with, with management or leadership. So you might get exposure to opportunities, you know, development, um, put forward for things that those people who are remote don't get that that opportunity to have and that would have implications on things like promotion opportunities salary increases etc um so you want to make sure that you're kind of fighting against that so you know by doing things like making sure that you know development opportunities are and, and um, kind of special task force opportunities are being conveyed to people in a kind of an equitable way so whether that's posting on a, a site, sending out through an email, what have you, um, but also that you have a way of making sure you're not, you know, you management leadership are not falling prey to the who I know best, who sits next to me syndrome um, in terms of selecting somebody for something. One of the other things you just spoke about the, you know, people feeling overburdened because they're the ones in the office having to do things. Uh, I think in that case, there's a couple different um, paths to take. And one is looking at what's being done in the office and doesn't have to be done in the office. I think one of the things that was a obstacle, a barrier 
uh, to remote working for many organizations before the pandemic was kind of this cultural belief and norm that if I can't see you, I don't believe you're working. Um, <laughs> and therefore, a lot of organizations just flat out said no, or it was by exception. You know, you kind of had to make the case for telework. Um, and now we've demonstrated, uh, we've painfully demonstrated that, yes, you can do a lot of things remotely. And you can actually, you know, even see um, productivity and improvement gains in many ways. Um, so the idea that, you know, I have to see you to make sure you're working is kind of been blown out of the water, although there's still some people who think that. Um, and so that well, there's some people that think the opposite, too, where because you work remotely, you're available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Absolutely. The work-life balance bleed over. Yeah, that's one of those things that uh, I think is really important to address both through kind of the, you know, the, the norms of your organization, but also modeling by leadership. If, if you as a leader, you know, are sending out emails at, at 3 a.m. or, you know, like, you know, set meetings that start at 6 p.m. or what have you, um, you're setting an expectation, whether you mean to or not, that other people should be doing this. Um, and one of the things that, that we really like to talk about in terms of like, you know, some good best practices and norms during this pandemic is, is modeling the um, good behavior, whether that is, you know, being vulnerable and saying like, uh, talking about how, you know, the pandemic may have impacted you too, being honest, transparent, um, just communicating uh, quite a bit. And then, you know, trying to reinforce these norms about work-life balance is important. Mental health is important. It, you should not be working all the time or you will burn out. And yes, we are absolutely saying that because it's so easy to add a you know half hour on either end of the day. You don't have time, but we found time here. So we're just going to have a really quick meeting. But that then becomes a new norm as well. I'm cringing now thinking about the emails I sent last night between 8 p.m. and 10 p.m. That's right. So there's some apps like uh, I know Outlook and I think even Google has uh, ability to be able to schedule your emails. So as somebody who used to have a boss that used to send emails on Sunday before he used to go to church, he used to ruin my entire day. So I've learned that lesson myself. Um, thinking ahead five years, like looking, you know, you know, looking ahead five years, um, where are we in this environment? Uh, I'd say, and we mentioned how a lot of things that we are seeing now were kind of already in play. The pandemic just sped them up. And I think one of the things that will probably stick coming out of this is where people live. Um, during the pandemic, we've seen a lot of people moving, which is an interesting concept in and of itself, moving during the pandemic where you're kind of locked down. Um, but we have seen people moving out of cities and moving out of kind of, you know, high cost of living areas because if, if I can do something remotely, uh, and if maybe I enjoy a lower cost of living, I enjoy more outdoorsy stuff. I want to be closer to my family. All of a sudden that's a possibility. And I, I know we saw a lot of people that may have temporarily moved or physically permanently moved where either the organization will need to continue to allow that and sustain that in the future, or that person will probably leave and find a similar job at another company. Again, part of this pent up demand and uh, competition for talent that is ongoing. Um, I think we're also going to see 
um, redesign of workplaces in the next couple of years. You have a lot of organizations that are kind of locked into office leases right now and are, are feeling that pain of nobody's in the office, but I still have to pay for that. So I, I think you're having a lot of organizations that are looking at their costs of those physical locations and saying, well, do we really need these going forward? And for those things that we do need in-person facilities for, transforming what is it that we're doing in person? Is it you know, only the collaborative team rooms where you're, you have whiteboards all over the place, you're drawing on the walls? Um, is it only networking type opportunities? What do you really need and get the most benefit out of being in person for? And how are organizations going to redesign the physical workspace in order to do that? I, I hope that organizations come up with a solution to some of this because everybody, every every one of these sort of like, I'll call them hoteling organizations, which I think is how they refer to them. And I've seen some of these, they are just so uncomfortable and, and sterile. Like I, I have friends, family, colleagues who work in some of these spaces and their comment to me is, so I go into the office, I know I'm going in on a Tuesday. I don't have a designated workspace, so I can't have, I mean, if you can, I think, Shay, you can see a little bit of my office. You know, I got pictures of the kids. I got, you know, some of the other stuff. I got candy bars in my drawer. They can't have any of that. It's a very sterile workplace. I'm not, and then some of these spaces are so, um, they're just not set up for quiet time, for confidentiality, for other things that people just lament the fact now that they, even though they would like to go in the office, they just lament it because it's just an uncomfortable experience. Are you hearing the same thing? Yeah, it's funny how we kind of go through waves and trends in kind of, you know, what does the, the office look like? Um, I, I think we were already starting to come out of a little bit of the, the you know, the open office concept uh, before this because some of the, the challenges you just brought up, like, you know, how do I have, um, a confidential conversation with a client when everybody around me can hear what I'm saying, unless I have to go into like a phone room, um, which I know some organizations have implemented. Um, so I, I think we're probably going to see experimentation. It is my, my gut here. You're going to have organizations experiment with a couple different um, models for what a physical workspace may look like now. And we're going to see a couple winners come out of that. Um, I don't expect the entire world to change. Um, but I do think we're going to see a lot of people stay remote. I think we're going to see technology continue to develop in a way that better supports hybrid populations because it is much, much harder to have a hybrid meeting than a virtual meeting or an in-person meeting. That combination, uh, I will tell you, having facilitated many meetings, it is harder to plan for on a facilitation side. It is harder for professors to teach to. It is harder for people to pay attention in a meeting where... There may be sidebar conversations going on where you can hear they're talking, but you can't really hear what they're saying. Um, and so I really think technology is going to evolve in that direction. I think we're seeing some some work in the IT space around having avatars and that sort of thing. So I think we're going to kind of, you know, do the, the, the test and see what survives approach to uh, the, the space. Um, I, I think there are some other really good trends that are going to stick around um, as a result of this in the future. And one is, I feel like there is an increased empathy that people are getting from going through hardship together and through seeing each other's inner lives. You know, right now we have had so many meetings now where you're actually seeing into people's homes, their children, their pets. It's 
there's a level of formality that was part of your, your professional work life previously that we, we've kind of, you know, mellowed that a little bit because we're having that insight into each other that, that we wouldn't have had um, previously. Um, and following the train of thought of, you know, empathy for each other, I, I think, and technology enablement, I think we're also seeing more accommodation, um, things that, you know, maybe people would have had to fight for reasonable accommodation. I think maybe we're seeing more movement in that direction as everyone has to figure out how to operate in this technology world and figure out how to exist and, and work together in, in hybrid meetings. And I think you're seeing more understanding and empathy for that, as well as having organizations that are formally putting in place more resources and, and programs to try to address some of the challenges we have around diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. I just started thinking about innovation as companies tend to like to innovate and a lot of those conversations tend to happen in a meeting or a hallway or things like that and how that that for for a company's lifeblood to continue will require to have them try to figure out how they con that they innovate in this hybrid environment that's going to be a challenge yeah i i think you're absolutely correct and i think this is gonna be another one where we're going to try out a few things and and a few of them are going to stick um some of the things that we are seeing are, uh, you know, either having, let's say, communities of practice, uh, teams, channels where your people are encouraged to put forward ideas. Do you have kind of these dedicated conversations around them? Maybe aligning some some benefits and incentives around encouraging innovation discussions. I know some organizations have actually set aside, um, you know, time for their people to you know, dedicate a certain percentage of their time some sort of passion project, some sort of innovation as a way of, of really trying to, to incentivize and push that forward. Uh, and that's been fairly successful even in, in fully virtual environments. So can you, uh, can you take us home, Shay? Give us uh, maybe uh, a, couple of, a couple, two, three do's and a couple, three don'ts that people can kind of take away from today's discussion that they can sink their teeth into and make sure that they're uh, actually going out and trying to accomplish or they're avoiding like the plague. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say organizations should focus on what are the outcomes they're trying to achieve instead of, you know, designing specific processes for, for HR or for IT. They should be looking at, you know, a, a more enterprise uh, way of, you know, what do they want the organization to look like in the future. They should design with agility in mind. Change is constant. It's getting more and more constant. Um, and they, they need to think about what should a workplace look if I want to enable agility, have you know, individuals moving in and out of the workforce, which you know is going to be the norm. You're having technology change. You're having cybersecurity um, be an increased concern. And then I would have them think about some of the best practices around culture and communication, you know, deliberately setting norms um, and, and having leaders model behavior to, as I mentioned earlier, show vulnerability, set work-life boundaries, communicate, communicate, communicate with people through a variety of mechanisms, provide your, your, your leaders, your workforce, your managers with best practices to better support and enable uh, individuals across the workforce and then kind of raising that digital IQ and having um, some of the tools for success. And then also think about what you don't want to do. 
don't be overly rigid in how you engage with people. Um, at this point in the pandemic, don't set a firm return to work date. Um, think we're continuing to adjust to new waves. And so again, I think agility is key. Trying to think of like, what are you trying to achieve? And therefore what makes sense for how to empower people to achieve it. And following the idea of outcomes, I would probably caution organizations not to focus on things like keylogging, uh, which I know some organizations have adopted uh, for making sure their people are working uh, virtually. Uh, I think there's some studies that are actually show that that can lower productivity, definitely lowers trust in the workplace as you're trying to build that rapport and, and uh, relationship uh, between management and employees and employees and each other. I think ultimately we're trying to focus on having a really good employee value proposition to attract and retain people, having a really good solid employee experience um, and being true to what you say. So Shay, uh, on behalf of the uh, Smale College of Business and the Center for Supply Chain Research and the Department of Supply Chain and Information Systems, uh, myself uh, and Er, uh, a belated uh, a happy Veterans Day to you. Thank you for your service <laughs> you. to the nation. And uh, you probably didn't biosurf me, but we're both fellow Dukies, <laughs> so it's always nice to spend time with a fellow Dukie. But we really appreciate you spending time with us today and contributing to our very popular Penn State Supply Chain podcast. I really appreciate it. It's been such a pleasure, and uh, hopefully we can work together again in the future. Thanks, Shay. Thanks for listening to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Supply Chain Research at Penn State. For information about our sponsorship opportunities, research needs, and professional development offerings, please visit smeal.psu.edu forward slash CSCR. <laughs>